Welcome to Toward Wellbeing, a podcast that seeks to offer wellness information and explore solutions to wellbeing challenges faced by the legal community. I'm your host, Nikki Irish, and I'm the Outreach and Education Coordinator for the DC Bar Lawyer Assistance Program. We're happy you're joining us today. As a reminder, we coordinate each podcast with the Washington Lawyer Magazine issue using the LAP column Toward Wellbeing as a jumping off point for a more in-depth conversation around the column's topic. The March-April issues column is called Creating a Healthy, Inclusive Culture. Our guests today were interviewed for the article, and we wanted to have them back to dig a little deeper into the topic. Today's guests are Nicole Lucas, Director of Programs at the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, of Montgomery County, Maryland, and Scotty Carter, an independent diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging consultant. Thank you both for joining me today to discuss the often overlooked DEIB strategy of employee mental health. And just as a clarifying statement, I want to define mental health, at least for this conversation, as those struggling with mental illnesses, substance use disorders, and those struggling with mental health challenges, but don't necessarily have a diagnosis. Mental health here is really meant to be all-encompassing. So Nicole, if you're up for it, I'd like to start with you. Can you talk to me about the relationship between mental health and DEI in the workplace, and a bit about the intersectionality of mental health challenges and marginalized identities? Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's a mouthful. <laughs> so I, I thought about that question and that's such a big topic that we could probably spend this whole time talking about, but I do have a couple of bullet points that I just wanted to address that people with mental health conditions often encounter a significant amount of stigma and that that's still a thing today. However, I do think it it has improved somewhat in the workplace just when you look at mental health. But I think specifically for marginalized identities and communities, there's shame that's attached to it. And for that reason, it makes it harder to talk about in the workplace. And I also think that if employees were to share that, they're more likely to experience discrimination, exclusion, and potentially some microaggressions in the workplace, which, which will be stressful and impact their productivity. Thank you. Actually, I'm gonna go back to Nicole again. Kind of what is NAMI doing to support mental health challenges in marginalized communities? That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. So we have a partnership with Coles, and so what we're specifically doing is we are working on offering BIPOC support groups and classes for our community of color. Now, I will say this, that when you look at mental health conditions, it's not linear, right? It's not, okay, step one, I get my diagnosis, and then step two, I go to therapy, and then everything's all better. You know, it's up and down. And so for that reason, with the NAMI model, in order to facilitate or teach a class, you have to have lived experience, and you also have to be in a place where you're stable. And so when you talk about people of color or Black and brown participants, sometimes they're not in that place where they're able to give back and support our community. And so what happens is they they want to, the intent is there, the interest is there, but when it comes time to actually facilitate a support group or class, it's just not the best time for them. So 
to answer your question, we're in the process of offering those specific groups, but at specifically at our affiliate, because NAMI operates at three levels. So we have national, state, and then the local affiliate, which we're Montgomery County, Maryland. And so we're having a little bit of a challenge with recruiting participants or volunteers who can facilitate those specific groups. But there, I will say this, that there are affiliates throughout the country that do have these groups up and running. So, and because we're virtual, which I guess is kind of a double-edged sword, but in this case, it's great because anybody can access a virtual group. So if you are a person of color, you can attend a support group in Minneapolis or mm-hmm. in Atlanta. So that definitely helps with being able to reach that community. Really opening it, opening the options yes. for the support. And really that that's going to tie in, I think, a bit, Scotty, to my question for you is, can you talk a little bit of why you think employees with mental health conditions are underrepresented groups when it comes to the DEI space? What do you see as the barriers to including employees with mental health conditions in these conversations? Well, first off, glad to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. You know, I think, to use an analogy, I I think if you have a a playground, right, full of kids and different grades, different spaces, we all start grouping up, right? It's kind of the the, the grouping of us. And then Mm -hmm. you you kind of have the popular kids, you have the kids who are the outcasts, right? And so we have not normalized mental health let alone, you know, what it's like to be inclusive. Like we, we've done, as a society, a poor job of that. And so imagine if you got, you're dealing with both, right? You know, especially, you know, in the black and brown community, you know, did you even get diagnosed for any mental health issues or you just knew, you know, you couldn't bring it up or you had to talk to God about it, right? N- nothing wrong with, you know, talking to God about it, but there are other avenues that are, are available as well. And so you have all of that coming into the workplace in which the workplace is where we spend the most of our time. We deal, you know, our waking hours, the pressure of the society. So it's like literally like, unless you are brave enough to reach out and to try to use whatever resources are available, then you may be met with backlash, right? Because once again, it's not normalized. So, so I'm a lawyer. So, you know, I remember you know, having conversations over and over again about, you know, if you have something on your record when you try to take the bar, you know, this idea of that, like, oh, you had a, you had to go to a therapist or whatever, which is not true, by the way, but that was the stigma. That was the culture. And I, and I think to kind of like finalize the point is that employees are often like said, like, hey, you know what? HR tells me I have access to all these great tools but I'm not seeing anyone actually use the tools. So therefore it's like, okay, it's something that's there, but like only break in case of emergency when that's not how we should treat mental health issues or concerns or any of the resources. Have you seen ways to overcome break in case of emergency? Yeah, I mean, we have to normalize the new normal. I <laughs> I, I often, uh, one of my mantras that I live and I even do a lot of my work by is, you know, nothing grows without the ground being disturbed, right? This idea behind that we have to get used to being disturbed for anything to grow. And so in these organizations, in these, you know, these employment opportunities, well, no, let's even take it back. And with dealing with employers, right? Employers have to make it normal to use these resources. So whether it's having the mid-level management or even, you know, people in management say, hey, look, I go to a therapist twice a week. 
it's covered by whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Like having some really testimonials would be helpful to help people understand that it's you're able to use it. Because so often or not, and in, in my experience of like building like employee resource groups, for example, people or employees are afraid to use something unless they see others doing it as well. And so you have to create a culture that allows for people to really use PTO, really use sick health, you know, Dave's to really use these tools and be critical of the tools, right? So, you know, if you have uh, a mental health, a therapy website that you can go to that's, you know, it's virtual and you use it and it was trash, you need to be able to say it was trash. You need to be able to say like, I didn't get what I needed from there. And so better example, let's say you're using, let's say using a mental health resource and it's catering to white people and you happen to be black or brown or whatever, and you connect with them and find like, yo, this is not helpful. This is actually more trauma-inducing. You need to be able to say to your employer, hey, this system's not working for me. That's also part of how we normalizing, you know, instead of breaking glass in case of emergency, we have to normalize like, hey, we want to be intentional about how we show up with what we're offering to our, our employees. And I heard a couple of pieces there. So I heard a lot about communication, right? That Essentially, we need to be regularly, constantly communicating resources, but also communicating that we use the services to whoever the we is, right? Like managers, other employees, whomever, that there's like a normalcy in accessing the services and seeing it happen. I also, I want to see somebody who looks like me using the services. Whatever I look like, I want that person, I want to see somebody using those services. And then I also need some safety in saying because I've already normalized it's normal to use the services, like in being able to say, actually, that service didn't kind of represent what I needed. Is there a way to kind of get my needs met? Absolutely. I, I think that, that clarifies it pretty greatly. And I, and I think, you know, it goes without saying that it takes courage on both ends, both the employer and the employee, right? This is a, but that's how it should be, right? This is a, a mutual relationship of sorts. And we need to normalize that as well. I think to Scotty's point and your point also, Nikki, it's it's really important to have representation. So you do have to be intentional, like Scotty said. And so that's why with our groups, I mean, we have to have someone that that looks like our participants. Someone I don't want to go to a group where the facilitator doesn't look like me because we have different experiences and needs and we have a different come from a different culture. And I think also at NAMI, that's come up with the content of the material that we cover in our classes. Like, for example, if someone's having a mental health crisis, the protocol is to call the crisis center or call, wait, well, 911 or now 988. Now, our black and brown participants, specifically with, with black sons, they're saying, I'm not calling the police. I'm not mm -hmm. involving them because I don't know what's going to happen. Or my, my loved one runs when he sees the police. That's We already know what's going to happen with that or the potential of that. So what other options do I have? And so back to Scotty's point about being more intentional, that's something that, you know, like I said, we're at the national level. So it's a little bit more challenging at the affiliate level to to change content, but we definitely give feedback because of the inclusivity, right? We want to be able to include our black and brown participants who are attending our programs and be able to speak to 
our needs as well, because that's not a viable solution for all of the above reasons that we're talking about. So I think material is important too. So talking about like going on the website and what kind of information is on there, it has to be, you know, something that that black and brown communities can relate to as well. All that Nicole is talking about is doable, right? I, I think what happens is we become overwhelmed. And so like, there's another adage that I think about, but like, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? And oftentimes when I am consulting or doing trainings or whatnot, it's just that we understand it can be overwhelming, but it doesn't mean it's not, it's not impossible, right? Like you can implement these changes and you can move forward and you can move the ball. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And, and reminding the listeners that like the stuff we're talking about here can be overwhelming, sure. And but you can still work and make progress. And that is something that every employer can do, can actually tangibly set a goal and say, like, this is from year one to year, you know, year two, year two to year five. Like you can actually do this and make a difference. To your point, Scotty, I am really enjoying your feedback because I was talking to a volunteer last week and she said, I don't want to continue to celebrate the problem. Like we're talking about all these issues and what's going on in the workplace or what's going on in the mental health field. Let's talk about the solutions and implement it. So she said, so you know what I'm doing? I'm just going to sit in my little sandbox and I'm going to do what I can do. And I think that's to your point, the one bite at a time, because otherwise we're we're just spinning our wheels, right? We're just chasing mm -hmm. our tail. Or we're just hopeless, right? Like, that's the right. key. I think people forget that, like, life sucks at times, right? Like, mm -hmm. the things you see on TV, like, you're overwhelmed. If you don't have something that, like, grounds you, yes. then you just kind of spin out of control. And this is one of those topics in which, like, you know, if you're dealing with mental health and you're an employee, you're just like spinning out of control because something happens. And it's like, mm -hmm. no, like there are small victories. There are things that can ground you in seasons that may be horrible for you. You can be grounded. And I think in those victories, you can ground yourself, right? If you're an employer, you're like, why can't we keep black and brown people? Okay, that's the thing that comes up. How do you set things up? And so, okay, we're going to do this and celebrate those knowing that we are not being complacent either because there's a balance I, I use this phrase often for the oppressed it's never fast enough when you are oppressed you feel burdensome it's never you can never get the oppression off you fast enough which is fair but like i am my ancestors wildest dreams here in 2023 the things i've been able to do and accomplish if my grandmother was alive today she'd be crying just can't believe that her grandson has done some amazing things i've done so both can be true Sorry, Nikki, we just we keep talking going back. And I forth. love it. No, I'm here for listening. What I loved what you both said essentially was there is no option to do nothing. But we get overwhelmed by the idea of how much there is to do. Because there is a lot to do, right? But that shouldn't stop us from taking the first step and then taking the second step. And that nobody expects it to happen tomorrow. It would be great if it did, but that's not really how the world works, right? Like but a step does matter. And I guess I, what I was sitting here reflecting on was the two things that I noticed, at least in talking to people that get in the way, right, are with attorneys is either kind of like lawyer perfectionism. Like if I cannot do it right, I'm not going to do it. Like because I'm too fearful of getting it wrong. And or the like white fragility space of like I'm too fearful of doing it wrong. 
So just kind of sometimes acknowledging those two points are really important that that can be a barrier and that like, okay, just dip your toe in the water and start there. It's a good point. I think the, the fear, I think even white fragility or, any, or just attorney professionals, the human's fear. Yeah. One of the biggest misnomers, I tell people this all the time, I am a powerful black man. I'm proud to be one, but I am afraid in most rooms I walk in. There's fear to speak up. There's fear. And people will be like, oh, Scotty, you sound so sure of yourself. You're so confident. I'm like, I'm doing in spite of the fear that shows up for me. Because, you know, I can go a place and I can be mistaken for someone else. And those things happen often. But I don't let fear rule me. And so when you are dealing with fear, taking that first step is a human experience. So, like, I'm not superhuman because I decided to be brave. I'm accessing mm-hmm. the same abilities that you can access or you know if you've ever practiced an attorney you've been in for your first time you won your case the first time you submitted this deposition you were proud of yourself like it's the same exact experience you just have to take that first step and i i, I don't like how we make you know other entities or other groups like superheroes and it's like no 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 i've just activated you know my belief and courage and you can do the same mm-hmm. thank you so essentially, right, employees, what we've been talking about, right, employees don't experience mental health challenges in a vacuum. Employers play a role for both good and bad. So if as an employer, I'm thinking about how I can do something different to improve the workplace, kind of what would that be? But particularly if I'm not someone who struggles with mental health, like a mental health condition, or has a marginalized identity, how can I raise my own awareness about these issues so I can have an impact in the workplace in terms of the intersection of mental health and DEI? I think employers need to just have an invested interest in their employees. And, and, and what I mean is, is like, you know, mental health, the statistics show it. It's, it's a leading cause of a lot of issues and different concerns, and it affects a lot more individuals. And and I understand the argument that we only have limited amount of resources, we only can focus in on so many things, but this would be one of the big four <laughs> that you need to pay attention to. And so it is the investment of time, energy, effort, and resources. That's where you have to start. And then if you find yourself to not, you know, you're on the C-level suite or you're, you know, managing a group of people, you don't deal with mental health issues. In the technology that we have today, it takes you no time to become aware of what's going on. You don't need to be an expert. You tell people you just want to have enough to be dangerous. And I think there's enough information that you can research and, you know, spend an hour of your time learning about different things and you will be much more well-versed than you did before you even knew. I think also it's important for employers to be patient with the process, because I think when it comes to DEI, it's trendy, it's a buzzword, it's, oh, we got to do this. But at NAMI, I think because of COVID, this is, I guess, a, a plus side, employers are more aware about mental health issues now because everybody just started, you know, kind of coming apart at the seams, right? And so we got calls at NAMI saying, okay, NAMI, can you come help us? (laughs) And I said, so I I also happen to have an EAP background. So those calls get forwarded to me. And, uh, you know, I I have to kind of coach them and say, this isn't going to be like, I'm going to come in there and do a training and then everything is going to be better. (laughs) It's not going to work like that. 
this is a process. We have to work on the culture. We have to get the leaders on board. We have to kind of think through exactly what are you seeing in the workplace and identify these issues that before we can kind of figure out what's going to work best for your workplace. So I, I think also being patient with the process and really thinking it through because some of those calls that I was getting was I, I'm really looking for a Band-Aid solution here. And, you know, it wasn't exactly, I wasn't saying what they wanted to hear, but once we talked it through, it was, okay, I hear what you're saying and you're right. I do want you to just come in here and fix it. And so we can move on to the next thing. So I think to add to what Scotty said is, is being patient with that process. Great reminder. But I pictured kind of with a Band-Aid on like a gaping wound, right? That it's, I know, actually, right? <laughs> it's like totally, it needs stitches. Like that's not going <laughs> to cut yeah, it. Right. But uh, I'm going to end. Thank you both so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And I want to leave you with two gentle reminders. The first is given the impact on employees and workplaces, every employer should see accessible, inclusive mental health as an ethical and strategic imperative. And that it's really, we must shift from kind of seeing mental health as an individual responsibility and move it to a collective priority. And then really, if you need help navigating this space or any space in being human, know that help is available and please reach out to the Lawyer Assistance Program. And until next time, take care.